Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the first ever Unlocking Landscapes podcast episode. I'm your host, Daniel Greenwood, and I'm really excited to launch this pod and talk to some of the amazing people we have lined up. In January 2021, at what we hope is the height of the UK's COVID crisis, I spoke to author Chris Shuler over Zoom about his upcoming book on London's historic Great North Wood. His most recent book, Along the Amber Route, St. Petersburg to Venice, published in February 2020, has been shortlisted for the Bookmark Book of the Year 2020 and longlisted for the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize 2021. He is also the author of Writers, Lovers, Soldiers, Spies, A History of the Authors Club of London, 1891-2016, and Three Illustrated Histories of Cartography. He has written on literature, travel and the arts for The Independent, The Independent on Sunday, The Tablet, The Financial Times and The New Statesman, served as chairman of the Authors Club from 2008 to 2015 and was elected a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in 2011. Chris's upcoming book is a historical account of the Great North Wood, a cluster of ancient woodlands and green spaces that connected five boroughs in South London. We need to give a shout out to London Wildlife Trust, as well as local volunteer groups and local councils, who've invested decades of work in conserving and enhancing significant tracts of the Great North Wood, and in making them safely accessible for public enjoyment. One of these woodlands is thought to have over 300,000 annual visits, underlining its huge importance on both an environmental and social level. So, hello, Chris. Hi, Daniel. Um, welcome to the first episode of the Unlocking Landscapes podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for asking me. The first question I have for you um, is, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in a sitting room in Herne Hill. Uh, if I open the French windows to the garden, I can actually see Sydenham Hillwood from here. Uh, Sydenham Hillwood. So for those of you who don't know, Sydenham Hillwood is one of the the largest remaining remnants of the Great North Wood, which is um, the subject of Chris's upcoming book, The Wood That Built London. And so, of course, at the moment in England, we can't really go anywhere. Um, we're supposed to, we're told to stay at home and we don't really go out for food and exercise and other things. Uh, a small number of other things. Um, what have you been up to recently? Well, uh, to be perfectly honest, mostly I've been at home uh, reading, writing and editing. I mean, I do. I mean, we're lucky here in that uh, we do have a garden and uh, it's quite a leafy area. So, you know, I can go for walks around the block and uh, I tend to avoid the parks, unfortunately, because they are far too busy but uh, you know twilight walk through quiet streets is a nice refreshing way after to spend a bit of time after a day's work yeah i've um on a couple of occasions i've gone out in the in the night time to uh, just walk through the town um where i live in west sussex and yeah it's been really empty um it's it's very very strange, isn't it? These sort of it's not as it's not as empty as it was back May in um, or April or something like that, but it's still still fairly empty compared with how it was in sort of November time. Um, mm. So your garden is very important to you, then. Of course, gardens in 
in London are a, a really important part of the urban ecosystem. Do you um, do you see a lot of wildlife in your garden? Um, foxes nearly every day, red squirrels, uh, sorry, grey squirrels, red squirrels, that would be something. Um, what else? Bird life. Uh, robins regularly, wrens, uh, magpies, a lot of magpies around. Um, wood pigeons, of course. I heard blackbirds singing the other day as well, and it's just starting up again. Uh, the usual London garden birds, basically. Occasionally we see blue tits and grey tits. Didn't you get a fox video on Springwatch once or something like that on the news? Uh, yes, it wasn't mine. It was a neighbour uh, two doors up who actually had a fox cam installed, which was broadcast live on uh, on Simon King's personal website. And it caught a burglar climbing over a fence. <laughs> Unluckiest burglar in South London. <laughs> that's, that's why I remember it. That is a, that's a great story. Yeah. Um, I heard a blackbird singing just when I went out for a walk. I actually had one singing outside my window all through the winter. And we, I live near a railway line, so um, I think it's because of the light pollution. Um, but, yeah, it's nice to hear it in, in the daytime. It shows you that spring's coming as well. So, Chris, we're going to be talking about your upcoming book, The Wood That Built London, which is about the Great North Wood. You are a professional writer. Um, but, yeah, what is what is your work like? Well, I'm a writer and editor. I mean, I do a lot of editorial work as well. I think... Um, a lot of people don't aren't really aware that many published writers uh, can't really subsist on their earnings from their books alone, and uh, quite often there's a lot of time delay as well between doing the work and, uh, and getting paid. So, which is why so many writers do you know bits of journalism or teach creative writing or various other things. Uh, I well, I've worked in publishing in one guise or another since I left university. Magazines, uh, I worked on the independent newspaper for 10 years and uh, I've done a lot of work for various book publishers, uh, project managing particularly complex illustrated books and uh, copy editing the text. Uh, in between that, you know, I've written several books of my own and uh, the most recent one along the amber route uh, came out last February. Uh, it's a travelogue through Eastern and Central Europe. Yeah, so basically it's, it's not a bad balance, really. And I think the editorial work probably helps give me a certain objectivity about my own writing. Um, so you've, you've been writing for quite a long time then. Um, um, you have sent me a copy of um, of your book. And I think I said to you earlier before we start, before we pressed the record button, that I'd got about halfway through it um, in about a week. Um, and I'm just really amazed by the level of detail about that part of South London and the, the details about when the woods were cut in the... I can't remember how far back it was, 15 something. And, you know, every 10 years, the woods were cut. And, and it just strikes me that the, the level of um, motivation required to research something like that is quite impressive. And, you know, what is it that motivates you and inspires you to, to write a book like that? Um, curiosity, I think. You know, I've 
you know, really interested in finding stuff out. And then, of course, you know, once you've done it, you, one thing leads to another as well. Um, and then, of course, you think, you know, what can I, what can I make of this? What can I do with this? How can I share it with as many people as possible? I mean, I started out sort of making that little film that you've seen about the Great Northwood. And by the time I put that together, I realised that there was far more. There was actually enough to make a book and there was material as well that uh, maybe didn't lend itself to uh, a short documentary film but could be explored in more detail in a full-length book so yeah i mean we're lucky we're very lucky with the uh with the great northwood in that uh we have surviving records i mean we know from the biological evidence that it is um, parts of it are ancient woodland because they do have ancient woodland indicator species such as uh, wooden enemy and so forth but uh, we also have uh, written documentary record because uh, large parts of it particularly Dulwich and Sydenham woods belong has belonged to the Dulwich estate since the beginning of the 17th century and they managed it uh, for timber production on a rotational coppicing basis. And the southern portions of the wood belong to the Archbishop of Canterbury because the Archbishops of Canterbury were also lords of the manor of Croydon. And uh, they were doing the same thing. And fortunately, both institutions still exist and their records survive. Um, the uh, Records of the Dulwich Estate are in Dulwich College itself in their archive. And the records of the Archbishop of Canterbury are in Lambeth Palace Library. So I spent a great deal of time in both uh, going through these documents, which are mostly mostly accounts. That's how we, I mean, it's the coppicing has probably been done since at the very least anglo-saxon times but it's only once you get to the 17th century that you really do have a detailed written record of it that tells you which coppice was felled in which year and how much money was raised by selling the timber and uh, so that in, of, in and of itself is is fascinating but it's also evidence for the uh, you know woodland management practices that were followed over, over centuries. Can you tell us what coppicing is, Chris? Yes, it is cutting down of a tree at, uh, just above ground level and then allowing it to reshoot. It doesn't work with conifers, but it works with, they chop them down at the base, they die. But most deciduous trees will send out vigorous new shoots. Uh, these are left to grow for depends on the steering on the species about 10 years by which time they will be thick strong flexible poles that are very useful for all manner of things and particularly prior to the industrial revolution they they were used to make uh, hurdles to fence in livestock uh, wattles for the um, infill of a timber frame house which should be covered in plaster uh, they were used for axles and spokes for chair legs table legs uh, tool handles sort of you know practically anything you can think of that requires a 
strong round piece of timber sort of up to two two and a half inches thick what happened in most woods was that they were divided and the term coppice applies both to the uh, to the practice of uh, coppicing and to the uh, individual plant it also applies to an area of coppices uh, and most woods were divided which were regularly harvested on this basis were divided into a number of coppices that were done in rotation so that uh, in fact in Dulwich woods there were 10 coppices so by the time the 10th had been felled the first would, had grown up to the extent that it was ready for felling once more so they so they simply felled them in a cycle and uh, from the estates in from the records in Dulwich College, you can actually, I've been able to recreate the cycle. That's fascinating. Um, I'm wondering, before, before we talk more in detail about the Great North Wood, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this and wondering, you know, what is the Great North Wood? How could that ever be in London, which is in the south of England? We can get into that stuff. But um, I'm just wondering how you think the kind of information that you've been finding about woodland management and land management you know why that's important today and why you know is there a way that that can be used to um to support and sort of direct not direct that's that's a bit too much but um kind of inform is a word i'm looking mm. for the management of of the great northwood today yeah well i think it already does um because uh, the well as you well know the london wildlife trust have been uh, coppicing hazel in sydenham hill wood for some years now uh the reason these practices are valuable is that they uh created uh, a unique range of habitats because if you think about it you've got 10 coppices in the sense of areas all adjacent to each other all in different stages of growth so there are actually 10 quite distinct habitats there and uh, as we know uh, the most uh, biodiverse areas in terms of uh, both plants and animals are the margins of specific habitats the margins of woodland where they meet a glade and so forth so um an area of coppice woodland although it was created entirely for human convenience had the and um, for productivity had the welcome side effect of producing this uh, very diverse biosphere and the coppice poles all growing very closely together you know provide lots of wonderful crevices for insects as well so uh once the industrial revolution took place the oh the other um the other purpose of coppicing was to provide charcoal which was the commonest source of fuel until uh well, until the construction of the canals meant that coal could be easily transported from the north of England to the south. Uh, once you get the Industrial Revolution, uh, demand for woodland products falls off dramatically. Uh, things that used to be made of wood were now made of iron or steel. 
and so this wooden management declined uh, and what you then get in areas like the surviving remnants of the great north wood is uh, very overgrown wood with a dense canopy uh, and not much in the way of understory and uh, not especially biodiverse so in a way uh, you know the reserve officers and the volunteers are trying to some extent to recreate the diverse habitat created by ancient practices of woodland management. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because there'll be people who who listen to that sort of information and and they'll be like, hang on, I thought nature doesn't need people and you know, nature nature can do it all on its own. I know that uh, rewilding is very is becoming very much sort of mainstream and popular now. Um, but it's it's much more subtle than that. I know that um, some people think the woodlands shouldn't be managed at all. But you know, as you say, the evidence does show that a lot of woodlands that are that were once managed um, intensively in a more sustainable way do produce you know greater, more diverse populations of species. So. Um, yeah, it's always, it's interesting kind of looking at those different perspectives and there's oft, often sort of a clash there, isn't there? Um, you mentioned iron. I thought that was quite interesting because I um, I used to live in South London near the Great North Woods um, and now I've moved to the, the edge of the Sussex Weald. That sounds a lot more romantic than, than it is. I'm not in the forest. I'm in a town. <laughs> but um but there's loads of roads around here like hammer pond road and there's lots of streams that um come that come down from the high weald um and they've been dammed um and they would been they would have been dammed for um long ago for the production of um the sussex wheeled iron industry um so mm. yeah it's 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 very interesting in that respect. Um, you just before we move on to the Great Northwood, you were talking about the Industrial Revolution. Could you just um, sort of confirm what sort of time you know when when that took place? We're talking about the late eighteenth century and into the nineteenth. And it does appear that a lot of species declines have actually been linked back to that period. It's not just. And I know there's been a lot of species declined and uh, declines with things like nightingales in the past, well, even like the past 20 or 30 years. But um, the, the impact of the Industrial Revolution on the landscape has kind of started something that we're still living through, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, moving on to the Great North Wood and just kind of trying to understand exactly what it is. Uh, what is the Great North Wood um, and why is it called the Great North Wood? Well, now this is interesting and it's um, in a way slightly embarrassing because everybody knows it or everyone involved knows it is the Great North Wood and uh, that's the name of the lottery funded uh, project that the Blunt Wildlife Trust have been running. But I can find no record of it being called the Great North Wood before about 1863 in the records of the Surrey Archaeological Society. On every old map and document I've looked at before that, it's either the North Wood or Norwood. Uh, no great. So it's, uh, it's kind of ironic that uh, the epithet great was only applied to it just as it was sort of fading into history. Uh, just Suppose as a product of Victorian romanticism. Uh, but 
It was called the Northward because, as I mentioned before, uh, parts of it were owned by the Manor of Croydon, which in turn was owned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it was north of Croydon. Uh, so they called it the Northwood or Norwood, which has given us the name of the suburb. Uh, interestingly enough, the area around uh, what was Sydenham Common, which wasn't so densely wooded, it was kind of semi-wooded pasture, that actually belonged to the Priory of Lewisham. Uh, and so it was called the Westwood because it was west of Lewisham. And of course, Westwood is still a street name in the area. I grew up in a house that was built on Westwood Common, <laughs> um, or the Westwood. Um, so yeah, that, that name only made sense to me maybe about 10 years ago or something. So that, that was really interesting. Um, is it, it's also, I'm, um, I'm being a bit biased here. I've mentioned the Sussex Weald. I also read somewhere that it, it might be called the Northwood because it was north of the Sussex Weald, which was, which is still one of the most wooded parts in the, of the country, but was once much more kind of impenetrable. Um, is there any evidence of, of that as well? Well, um, I mean, obviously the northernmost part of the Weald is, is just to the south of Croydon. So I, I guess the Croydonites called it the Northwood in order to differentiate it from those woods down south. One of the, the things I like about your book is the, I think every time you have a place name, you say what it means. And I think that mm. is one of the things that particularly people who live in South London are really interested in about local history. Um, and Croydon, can you tell us what Croydon means? Oh, uh, yes. It's the Valley of Crocuses, because apparently they used to grow them for saffron around there. That, yeah, that's interesting as well, because um, I know there's some London Wildlife Trust nature reserves like Hutchinson's Bank, which is in New Addington, um, mm. and the chalk downland around there um, in Croydon. It does actually, I mean, it has meadow saffron growing there, which I think is wild. Um, ah. Yeah, so perhaps they cultivated the wild plants. I mean, I'd need to double check, but I'm pretty I'm sure, sure it's... sure they did, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because of course, saffron is uh, was, and it's still a very expensive uh, condiment, spice, or whatever it really is, because it's the stamens of the uh, of the plant. So really, it should be it should be um, renamed Croydon Spice. Yeah, <laughs> which is probably the name of a nightclub in East Croydon. I was going to say it might not have quite the right connotation. <laughs> Well, Chris, if if, um, if the writing career doesn't work out, you could become a, a nightclub owner and open Croydon Spice. Um, maybe not. So how did you get to know the Great North Woods? Because you obviously, to write a book like this, you need to have a fair amount of substantial knowledge and interest in the area itself. And obviously you live, um, you live pretty much in, in the historic um, sort of territory, should we say, of the Great North Wood. Um, yes. But yeah, how did you really get to know the landscape? Well, I, I mean, I visited uh, Sydenham and Dulwich Woods on and off for years. And then in 2011, I started volunteering there. And, uh, you know, in the course of volunteering and you know, chatting to other volunteers and 
reading up on the subject, I, you know, learned that, it, you know, it's part of the larger Northwood. And so, uh, um, yeah, I became intrigued. I started collecting old maps, uh, not not the originals, unfortunately, uh, but, you know, digital copies and, you know, working out how they related to the modern street map and uh, where the surviving fragments of the wood were. And I mean, there was a sort of, um, back in the 1990s, um, our friend and colleague Matthew Frith started a Friends of the Great North Wood uh, to attempt to raise awareness of all the surviving parts of it and to sort of treat them in a holistic way. And uh, that, project has sort of obviously been significantly revised but revived by the uh by the trust with the aid of the heritage lottery funding um and there was a pamphlet uh put together by lucy neville back in i think it was as early as 1987 which contained a map of the former extent of the wood uh so that kind of got me interested and i mean that's that's very good and very it's very good and well-researched little booklet, but uh, obviously uh, there was much, much more that could be said. And uh, so I started, I started investigating. There was also the only other publication on the wood as a whole was published by a Croydon historian called John Corbett Anderson in 1898, printed by private subscription, um, called The Great North Wood. Uh, which again is interesting, although uh, obviously it doesn't cover the last uh, 120 years and since it was published. And, um, you know, that too misses out quite a bit. Uh, but it's, it's a useful book and I've quoted from it uh, in my own in places. Yeah, um, it's important that we mentioned Matthew Frith, <laughs> who. Um, has been involved with London Wildlife Trust and in the Great Northwood for a very long time. I think he, he likes to tell you quite often, actually. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I think he's been he's been involved definitely over thirty years. Um, but Matthew, if you're listening, um, it'd be great to get you on here, and I, I think there might be an opportunity for that. So, um, so yeah. Um, so Chris, you volunteered at Sydenham Hill Wood. Um, Yes. which of course is the most it's kind of the tourist attraction of the great northwood isn't it well i suppose you know streatham common is is also great northwood there's lots yes. of parks and places that people don't realize are great northwood um but i wanted to ask you just to to set it out in people's minds um if you were to walk the perimeter of the great northwood as it is today which places what would your route be what which places would you pass through Oh, goodness. Well, you'd probably start New Cross, where there used to be Hatcham Wood, and you'd head south to Brockley. From there, you'd sort of more or less follow the course of the railway to uh, One Tree Hill in Honor Oak, uh, which was the uh, Oak of Arnon Hill and was very much part of the Great North Wood. Uh, from there, you'd head south, past the Horniman Museum, up Sydenham Rise, 
along the crest of Sydenham Hill. You'll have Sydenham Hill Wood on your right, and uh, as you progress on your left, you'll have uh, Crystal Palace Park, which was uh, which was wooded until the Crystal Palace was uh, transported there. Uh, I'll take you down the hill into Penge. Let me think. And um, from there, I mean, this doesn't necessarily take you through all the surviving parts of the wood, but around the perimeter of it, uh, you would head down to, uh, well, pretty much down White Horse Lane with uh, Grangewood Park on your right, which was part of the White Horse Estate. And you can still see there's still a magnificent stand of oaks in Grangewood Park that towers over White Horse Lane. And from there, you go to Selhurst, which was sort of more or less the southern edge of the wood. You know, once once the, the ground lowers, you know, and you come down off the hill. And then you'd have to turn around via west and then north again, uh, pretty much up London Road, through Thornton Heath, through Streatham, uh, through Brixton. Um and you'd probably then head east through Loughborough Junction, where uh, the Milkwood Estate, which was wooded until the Civil War in the 17th century. Uh, then from there, back towards Peckham and uh, New Cross. So it's a big chunk of southeast London. Yeah, there's some uh, there's some great place names in there, aren't there? Because um, Broccoli is becoming a very popular, quite hip place <laughs> to live. Mm. Um, but what does Broccoli mean? Oh, it's uh, it it, reference, it it references badgers. Yeah, and um, I've got some friends who live in Catford, and um, th they've had badgers at the bottom of their garden. So. Um, you know, but that, and that's not too far from from broccoli. So maybe they are still around. So, Chris, what made you want to write this book? What made me want to write the book? Well, I suppose I started gathering information for that little film I made, and I realised that there was you know much more to it. And then I just got sort of fascinated. Uh, I was amazed at actually at how much documentary evidence actually survived. And uh, I don't think that is always the case uh, with, uh, well, particularly with woodlands and so on. Uh, but as, as I mentioned before, you know, you have two institutions that still exist today in which uh, are fairly efficient at keeping records. So, uh, I was able to uncover an awful lot of information. And then there was, there was other stuff in the National Archives. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's, there's a reference in Lucy Neville's book to a court case between um, Elizabeth Ryden and the Archbishop of Canterbury over the uh, ownership of a wood in Penge. Uh, but once I actually managed to track that down to the original uh, documents, which are the uh, 
witness statements and judgments in a case that was heard in the Court of Exchequer in 1578, uh, discovered there was a whole lot more to it than that. Uh, the um, Penge at that time actually belonged to the, was a little island of land belonging to the manor of Battersea. Uh, where it's a long way from Battersea, uh, it was awarded to the manor of Battersea by one of the Anglo-Saxon kings, uh, principally for the reason that it was wooded and uh, Battersea was, in those days, was is low-lying and in those days was very marshy. And apart from the sort of trees like others and willows that you get on the riverbank, it didn't have a lot of useful timber. So uh, it owned Penge, and Penge remained part of Battersea until the 1899 Local Government Act, can you believe, which also created the County of London. Um, but so it was an exclave of Battersea. Uh, but this coppice lay on the border between Penge and Croydon. Uh, the Battersea was actually... Um, direct possession of the monarch, but its tenant, uh, now the tenant of the monarch was known as the king or queen's farmer. Uh, and they were in effect the lord of the manor, if not in name. Uh, this chap, Henry Ryden, felled a coppice uh, in, on the borders of Penge and Croydon. The Archbishop of Canterbury got to hear about it. Uh, and sent his men to confiscate the coppice wood, which was then carted off to the yard of the Archbishop's Palace in Croydon. Um, the the Rydens then sued, but by the time it came to court, both Henry Ryden and the Archbishop, who was Matthew Parker, had both died. So the case was brought in the name of uh, Henry Ryden's widow, Elizabeth Ryden. Uh, and there are sheets and sheets and sheets of witness statements from people both from Croydon and from Penge, each asserting that, you know, it was always part of their patch. Um, and, and, you know, these long, long sheets, mostly on parchment, uh, with, you know, there must have been about 30 witnesses all giving their accounts. And they talk about the beating of the bounds of the parish, where the priest and the vestrymen and a number of teenage boys and very old men would walk around every few years, would walk around the boundary of the parish, uh, hitting boundary stones and boundary trees with sticks and carving crosses on them. And they'd also beat the kids in order to uh, fix the boundary in their memories. That was why they had, you know, young boys with them to, you know, carry the memory forward as far as possible in the future and why they had the very old men to remember back as far as possible. So, you know, you get this incredible account of these, um, they, they also call them perambulations, of these perambulations. And, and um, by the way, an awful lot of drink was taken in the course of them. So as you can imagine, there are some conflicting memories and there are occasions when they get lost uh, or they find that, you know, the path they were along a few years ago has got overgrown and they have to make a detour. 
Um, in the end, the court found in favour of the Ryans, uh, and I suspect that's probably because they were direct tenants of the Queen. And, uh, you know, in the end, you know, they, they weren't going to uh, challenge the Queen's right to that property. Um, but, you know, all this fascinating detail just started sort of emerging, you know, as I got deeper and deeper into the research. And I just thought, you know, I thought it was important that we had a book uh, that would be kind of legacy of the Great Northwood Project and that would actually be a, a modern history of the wood as far back as, as possible to write it and, uh, and as up to the minute as is possible within the uh, publishing schedule. But also, you know, it soon became apparent that this was, this was going to be more than just a sort of, you know, an informational handbook. It was quite a vivid and, you know, even swashbuckling story at times. Yeah, the, <laughs> I'm struggling to get over the um, information about the fact that boys would have been basically beaten underneath these um, oak trees. I presume they would have been oak trees. Um, but I suppose it's an improvement on what the Druids used to do to people um, underneath ancient oak trees. Um, yeah. <laughs> long ago. But maybe let's not get into that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things for me, um, you know, having grown up in the area, but not really been aware of the woods until I was in my twenties. Um, I think one of the things I love is the name of the book, the book that the book that built London, the wood that built London, because people don't necessarily always think about the origins of London. And nowadays we you know, we, we often just think this, um, we're used to stuff just coming out of thin, out, thin air and being on the shelves and stuff. But, you know, that the resources, the natural resources from this woodland have really been crucial to the development of London, haven't they? Um, and I just wondered if you... Well, absolutely. Yeah, and if you could tell us some more about what the kind of the most significant industries in the Great Northwood were and how they fed into London. Yes. And principally, it was the production of coppice wood for the uh, various... Um, uses that I've described, uh, and especially charcoal. Uh, I mean, the charcoal burners actually set up their kilns in the wood and uh, burned the charcoal there. Uh, Croydon was well known as a centre of uh, centre of charcoal burning, and uh, you know, Grimes, the collier of Croydon, uh, features in a number of Elizabethan and Jacobean plays um, as a sort of semi-comic figure. Um, of course, charcoal was needed for blacksmiths, bakeries, glass making, brick and tile making. So you know, prior to the widespread use of coal, uh, it was pretty much essential for everything. Then when you think that prior to the Great Fire of London, most houses in the city were built of timber. Uh, now, oak beams would have been necessary for construction purposes to provide the frame. Uh, uh, coppice wood would not provide that. Uh, but... 
under a statute of Henry VIII, they had to leave 12 trees to grow to full height for every acre of coppice. That was reserved for the navy, but uh, elsewhere, freestanding oaks would have been felled to uh, provide the structural framework of the houses. But the infill between it was made of uh, wattle, you know, woven uh, branches with vertical twigs, which was then covered with coarse plaster, you know, the white bits in a Tudor house, basically. Uh, so basically wood was needed for just about everything. You know, the city was more or less built of wood. Uh, the main source of fuel was wood. Uh, people lit their homes with uh, bundles of twigs known as bavins. Um, they would sweat them with besom brooms made of a coppice bowl and a number of trees. Everything from the wood was used. Uh, the oak bark was used for tanning leather. Uh, the tanneries were located in Bermondsey because they'd been banished from the city because of the smell. Um, yeah, the twigs would have been used for fire lighters, for for brushes, etc., etc. So you know, it was it was incredibly uh, efficient in that way. And really, yes, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the, the city was uh, utterly dependent on timber. I mean, obviously, the Northwood was not the only source of timber for the city of London. I mean, you, but Epping Forest was um, was a royal forest. Um, you know, in the sense that it was. Uh, closed for hunting so uh you know common people would be were not allowed to trespass there and were not allowed to gather wood from it uh a bit further west you do have uh middlesex forest of which uh or the middlesex wood of which highgate wood and queenswood are survivals that would certainly have been managed in a similar way and uh provided material for the capital so I think those are the two main sources, north and south. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned um, north of the river. Um, my mum grew up in uh, in Camden, and um, when she was a little girl, she used to go to Queen's Wood um, and play with her siblings, I think. Um, but mm. you mentioned Epping Forest, which, of course, is an amazing place, really really special place um it's interesting there because you've got these amazing ancient beach pollards um and pollards being trees that whereas a coppice is cut at the base of course a pollard is cut um to where the branch leaves the trunk so to speak so it kind of when it's all cut back it looks like a fist but in the great north wood you don't get naturally occurring um beach beach woodlands or um the only because in the in the Sussex Weald you get you actually get naturally occurring beech woodland, um, and you you get a lot of ancient beech pollard trees. You also get a lot of very old oak trees. But it's interesting that the Northwood didn't really have that. And the only, from what I know, the only beech trees there, the old ones, are Victorian plantings, aren't they? They are. Yes. Well, the Norwood Ridge is clay um, beech tends to favour chalk and limestone soils. Um, 
it does not its roots can't get a very good purchase on clay which is why uh several of those uh beech trees that were planted in victorian times have fallen over in recent years once they reach a certain height the uh the soil can't support their weight uh, the ecological niche that's normally filled by beech trees on you know chalk or limestone is occupied on clay by uh hornbeam which is the after the sessile oak is the second tree of the north wood uh and grows as you know very plentifully in uh particularly in sydenham hill wood but also in dulwich wood it used to be known as the horse beach because the you know the leaves are rather similar and it's sometimes mistaken for a beach uh, hornbeam, it, yeah, definitely is. Um, amazing autumn colour. I I must have missed that um, from, you, you don't, there's very few places I think that you really get that yellow beet, um, not beet, sorry, hornbeam, um, mm. some colour. Because I remember Ashley White, who uh, used to be the conservation officer at Sydenham Hill Wood, she said that when she moved into the southwest, she really missed the hornbeam in the autumn. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in Sussex, it's quite, it's not, yes, it's not uh, as strong. I don't know about the whole of Sussex, but in part of the wheel that I live near to, um, it's not dominant in the way that it is, in, particularly in Sydenham Hill and Dulwich Wood. Yeah, no, it tends to grow mostly in southeast England and uh, on on clay uplands, uh, I think I think you can find it as far north as Norfolk, but not much further than that. And quite a lot of hornbeams in the Chilterns as well, but again, not much west of there. Yeah, in Norfolk they used to call it hard beam, didn't they? Yes. Well, that's what that hornbeam means, yeah, because the wood is very very hard and uh, it's not much good for sort of you know delicate joinery or anything like that but it's useful for things like mallets and chopping boards and so forth but it also makes excellent charcoal which you know is also significant given the uh, given the fact that much charcoal was sourced within the great north wood uh, it burns at very high temperature so it's actually quite useful for sort of stuff like smelting iron yeah which is probably maybe why there's not so much of it in, in the sussex wheel because they chopped it all down in the uh 17 oh you may well be right about that yes yeah mm. um which is a shame um but yeah can't go well, if they were going to if they were going to use it industrially surely they would coppice it because the whole point of coppicing is that it's renewable uh, you know, you don't want to eradicate, uh, you know, a useful source of material. No, I, I don't think I've ever seen much in the way of hornbeam coppice stools around here. I've, there's a wood in Kent, which has got quite a lot of it on the North Downs, um, called Kingswood. And they've got these very interesting old hornbeam um, coppards. I think they call them halfway between the coppice and a pollard or something like that um but while we're talking about um old trees one of the things I've, i thought was really interesting about your book um that hasn't really i think one of the main things that interests me so much about your book is that it has a lot of information that hasn't been published before um and particularly about certain 
certain um, parts of the landscape that are now gone. So particularly the Vickers Oak, um, which is located, was located, sorry, um, was it at the top of Annerley Hill in Crystal Palace? Yes, it's, uh, that, it's the crossroads there. Uh, yes. And there is a plaque just beside the gate of Crystal Palace Park to say that the Vickers Oak used to stand there. And so this tree, I mean, you can tell us more about it in a second, but this tree was, is not there anymore. It was cut down for whatever reason. You've got some interesting stories about people's sort of anger and frustration about that happening. But um, it, th these sorts of old oak trees as boundary trees, I think you talked about the beating of the bounds and there's like the gospel oaks and stuff like that. I mean, what is the significance in a, almost, shall we say, in a kind of spiritual way of these old trees going down through um, British and European history that you know of? Well, I mean, I think just on a practical level, they served as landmarks, but I think they were also, you know, a defining part of people's identity. I mean, the, where the, the Vicar's Oak actually stood at the meeting point of five parishes, uh, Camberwell, Lambeth, Croydon, Battersea, in the form of its exclave at Penge, and uh, uh, so that was one of the most significant boundary trees. There were others. There was the nearby. There was uh, Low Cross Oak. There was Dead Man's Oak, and there was the Elder Oak, which grew in an elder bush. Um, all these trees are mentioned in various documents from the 16th and 17th centuries, including the trial that I was talking about. Uh, but the Vickers Oak was the largest and the most prominent of them. Uh, some witnesses said that it could be seen from 10 to 12 miles away, and one even claimed you could see it from Harrow on the Hill, uh, which is actually... 17 miles to the northwest so it must have been vast and it seems to have been cut down sometime around 1678 uh, when john aubrey the um historian and antiquary uh made his and um, biographer of isaac walton uh when he made his perambulation of surrey uh, he, he noted that it had already been cut down and there was considerable anger about it. Um, do you know why it was cut down? No, nothing to say why. I mean, there are references to boundary trees having been felled. Uh, there was one that was allegedly felled by somebody from Penge. And the Croydonites alleged that he'd filled it in order to obscure where the boundary was. So that's one possible motive. To obscure where the boundary was, that's just, that's, I mean, it's quite sinister, I suppose, isn't it? Someone, maybe someone trying to, trying to profit or whatever. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, it's, it's quite an act of violence, isn't it, to, to do something like that to a, such a significant tree. I mean, if that happened today... I mean, you could, at the moment, there's the whole issue with um, HS2 and you've got people living in trees to try and stop yeah. them being cut down. And um, I know there's been the issue um, 
in Sydenham Hill Wood with the two oak trees either side of the footbridge, yes. which obviously is a complicated issue. We can't really can't really cover that fully here. But um, the great the Great North Wood has from you know from reading your book, I did know a little bit about before. It's got quite a violent history, doesn't it? Particularly before the the um, the creation of the Dulwich Estates in um, 16 or 1700s. I'm not sure. Could you, could you tell us more about you know what happened to the local people who really depended on that, on the the commons and woods of the of the of the Great North Wood, and, and what happened in the 17th and 18th century. There was an increasing uh, movement to enclose common land. Uh, landowners and uh, agronomists thought that the the established practices of the common whereby people could you know collect firewood and graze their animals on it were inefficient and uh, they thought that say they needed improving and uh, that meant enclosing them and absorbing them into their land and certainly where it comes to the northward yeah i mean the first significant attempt to uh, enclose part of the great north wood took place in uh, 1607, when uh, a couple of local landowners, who also happened to be courtiers of King James I, uh, <coughs> sought his permission to um, enclose Sydenham Common. Uh, it was more than about 340-something acres. Uh, there were great protests about this, and it actually went to court, and uh, they were defeated, but they kept trying. And... Um, Eventually, the vicar of Lewisham, a man called Abraham Colf, who founded Colf School, uh, organised uh, a protest, but uh, which was ultimately successful. Uh, their attempt to enclose the land was defeated, but not before uh, <coughs> people had been driven off it. Uh, their livestock had been slaughtered. Uh, sheep's carcasses had been draped over bushes. Uh, there was a great deal of violence and intimidation going on. Um, that attempt was, as I said, was ultimately defeated, but certainly the enclosure process sort of gathered pace throughout the 18th century and certainly towards the end of the 18th century and the early years of the 19th century, virtually all common lands in England, including uh, those in Croydon, Lambeth and so on, were enclosed and uh, this of course is occurring at the time of the uh, you know the southward expansion of London so uh, that actually paved the way for their development building development in the 19th century. Yeah it's interesting isn't it because you know London obviously is very very built up air pollution issues um, it's a great city to live in, um, but some people probably would think of the Northwood as this wonderful rural idyll um, to return to, and wouldn't that be much better? But you know, it, it was a it was a dangerous place, wasn't it? It, it wasn't it wasn't all kind of sweetness and, and light. It wasn't like visiting a national trust garden. I, I would expect. Oh goodness, no! I mean, you know, well into the nineteenth century, it was you know it was a dangerous place. <laughs> And the thing is that, um, as I said, as you know, it was on the edge of five parishes, so it was well away from the 
centres of habitation, at least until the 19th century. Uh, um, woodland tends to survive uh, on, on the margins of parishes. I think it's Oliver Rackham who pointed that out. And that's where even today we tend to find ancient woodland. Uh, but that meant that although there were there would be people working in the wood during the day, uh, woodsmen and colliers and so on, at night it was deserted. And well, there were smugglers coming up from the Kent and Sussex coast, uh, bringing their uh their goods to london um quite a lot of there are quite a lot of uh newspaper records from the late 18th early 19th century of uh highwaymen uh robbing travelers in or close to the woods uh there was in 1803 there was the uh murder of the hermit samuel matthews in the woods um no they were they could be a violent place and uh, you know these were pretty lawless times as well uh i mean violence was not just i mean it well obviously i mean it came all the way down from the level of the state to uh the way private individuals would settle disputes Bringing it back to kind of present day, um, in a sense, we've got, we're obviously living through a pandemic at the moment. Um, but I was interested in your in your reference to um, Daniel Defoe and his account of the plague in 1665. Yeah, um, could you tell us a bit more about what what went down during that um, pandemic? Well, according to Defoe, a lot of uh, people tried to escape London into the woods uh, because obviously they were accessible and sparsely populated. Um, some of them were already infected. Uh, he said the local people wouldn't help them for fear of infection and many died there and he mentions in Dulwich and Lewisham um, and Norwood. Um, there is also the case of a vicar of Croydon, uh, his parishioners protested. They actually published a pamphlet complaining about him that during the, uh, they complained about his ex extortionate tithes, which he spent uh, in a house of ill repute in Newington. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was basically during the plague, he was burying the parishioners in the woods, but charging them as much as he would have buried them in the churchyard. That was their complaint against him. He was actually, the case went all the way to the Archbishop of Canterbury and ultimately King Charles II, and eventually he was moved from the parish. Uh, but uh, so that gives you some picture of what must have gone on then. I suppose on a sort of lighter note, I wanted to ask you who, we, I mean, we talked about Daniel Defoe there. Um, I know many people wouldn't call him a celebrity, but, you know, this is the, we are talking about sort of medieval woodlands and stuff here, but who were the Great Northwoods celebrities? What, in historical times? 
Um, yes, I, I don't mean the BBC news presenters who you often see walking there in present day. Well, I mean, obviously, um, well, not obviously, I mean, Byron was, before he went to Harrow School, was at Dr. Glenny's Academy, which stood where the Grove Tavern now is, at the junction of London Road and uh, Dulwich Common. And he is supposed to have walked up Potts' Walk to go and hang out with the gypsies in the woods. Uh, Robert Browning, as a young man, who of course grew up in Camberwell, uh, used to walk in the woods at night and would compose his poetry there. Uh, Ruskin, uh, who of course lived in Herne Hill, just over the road from where I am now, uh, was a great... Um, was a huge fan of the woods and was absolutely furious when the Crystal Palace was uh, built there, uh, forever ruining the view, he said. Um, who else is associated with it? Well, the French Impressionist painter Camille Pissarro uh, painted View of a Train from the, uh, from the Coxes, Oak, Coxes Walk footbridge, uh, although you can see a bit of trees off to the left, but at the time the uh, embankments uh, were bare. I mean, they'd only, it was only, the railway was only five or six years old, so they hadn't really, there wasn't much regrowth. Uh, about 25 years later, Emil Zola lived in Norwood in the Queen's Hotel uh, to escape imprisonment for his defence of uh, Dreyfus. And uh, he was a keen photographer. And uh, actually some of his photos show parts of the woods. Uh, there's one of his wife standing underneath an oak tree. Um, yeah, Zola, um, I remember reading about him and some of his photos were being advertised a couple of years ago. I think maybe someone, there's like a blog post or a newspaper article about it. Mm -hmm. um, Moving more to the kind of nature's celebrity, should we say, one of the things I really liked reading about were the, um, the quite unique species records that you've uncovered that I don't think I've ever heard of before. Um, you, you managed to find some pretty rare butterfly records. Um, so, for example, oh, yeah. um, the Duke of Burgundy, um, the Glanville Fritillary, mm -hmm. and the Marsh Fritillary, which um, the Duke of Burgundy is, I think it, I think it's one of the definitely one of the rarest butterflies in, in Britain. Uh, it's got a very particular um, taste. All these butterflies seem to the, the rarest ones seem to have quite particular requirements, should we say? Um, mm -hmm. They seem to be coming back in in Sussex and the South Downs quite well. Um, but yeah, marsh fritillary and Glanville fritillary very very rare indeed. And I th I'm just wondering, are you going to um, log on to the Green Space Information? The Greater London website and, and log the log the records from the 1700s or something like that. Just I was going to say they were rather a long time ago. That um, was I'm trying to think. That was John Ray, was it not? Who spotted the uh, Glanville Fritillary? I think so. Yeah, yes. but I mean, he's sort of late 17th, early 18th century. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. It just shows you how much the landscape has changed, really, and. Of course, it's not just, I mean, it's obviously changed um, quite a lot, but um, it would have been that sort of landscape now, if it had those species in it, would probably be, have a very high, it would be, it'd certainly be a site of special scientific interest or 
national nature reserve but um absolutely yeah um, and also as uh, i'm a big fan of fungi an interest which i i developed in the great northwood um <laughs> And I was very interested to read that in 1724, there were fungal forays going on. And I, you noted that it was mainly Amanita mushrooms that were found. So they're some of the, the more poisonous ones. So they include yeah. things like the death cap and destroying angel, but also uh, fly agaric, which is the, the, the super Mario red and white mushroom. Mm -hmm. that, that was really interesting to read that. Yes, I believe most of these are from uh, William Curtis's Flora Londiniensis, which was published in the second half of the 18th century. Um, I mean, he was interested in plants in general, and of course people in those days thought fungi were plants. It's a relatively recent discovery that they are a kingdom of their own. Uh, but yes, uh, the thing about these old records is, fascinating as they are, and valuable as it is to know that, you know, such uh, a species was present all that long time ago, um, they're not really done on in, a, in the systematic way that we now do our modern surveys and transects, in that they quite often relied on correspondence writing to them, about what they'd seen on their walks and uh, they didn't necessarily follow the same path at regular intervals you know so there was a there's a huge element of chance in it so you know we can't really treat them in the same way that we do treat uh you know well like the giggle information or something like that uh one of the things curtis quotes oh it's actually on one tree hill some of the fungi there or no, it was a walk from London to Dulwich of a friend of his, you know, like 30 years earlier or something like that. So there is a haphazardness about these early records. You know, this is the sort of kind of, they're just beginning to develop a scientific methodology. I mean, it becomes more reliable in the 19th century, but at the same time, it is fascinating for all that, uh, you know, to know that, well, you know, that some species that we have now were there back then. Uh, that, that makes me laugh um, because there's a, a long-term volunteer involved at Sydenham Hillwood, Chris, who you know well, called um, Ernie Thomason. And um, I just remember when, <laughs> many, many, many times he would talk about, oh, 30 years ago, there was this, that or the other. And I suppose he's kind of the continuation of a trend then. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Great, great servants of the woods that Ernie is. Um, if you're listening, Ernie, hello. Hope you're doing well. And I, another thing I thought was really interesting was you talked about the hybridization of English bluebell with Spanish, which is something that, you know, modern day conservationists are really worried about. And it's been it, it's been going on since the 1700s. Yes. Yeah. So, so it seems expressing concern about it. And um, interestingly enough, the ringneck parakeet, which everybody thinks is a very recent phenomenon, uh, it's certainly is. It? I think it's J.D. Power's book on the ornithology of Norwood uh, notes them in the 1890s. Is that is that the one where it has a fight with a cuckoo? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. No, uh, that's great. No. <laughs> yeah, is that is that the um, ornithological notes from a South London suburb? I think that's it. Yeah. Oh, that that's absolute gold. That book, um, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because that that tells you that Ryneck was nesting on. Um, in Dulwich on Cox's Walk in something like 1904, I think. That's, that's the one, yes. Yeah, and I mean, that's... Ryneck is now extinct as a breeding bird in Britain. Mm. Um, it, it's really interesting because it shows you that um, the species just change, don't they? I mean, there's things that we have now that we have now in the Great Northwood that were not there and, and vice versa but there's actually a lot there wouldn't have been any peregrines around i don't think there's not many records of things like that whereas you know they do you find them on the church spires in places like forest hill don't you so yeah, indeed yeah there, there weren't even any magpies or hardly any because they'd been practically persecuted to the brink of extinction uh, by gamekeepers uh, it's only after this Second World War and really since the 1970s that they've made such a dramatic comeback. Yeah, that was really shocking, actually. I think I've read about something similar. It might have been in um, Rebirding, um, a, a book about rewilding uh, Benedict McDonald's book. I think he writes in that about the kind of extermination of species in the countryside. But it's really shocking. Like the, um, I, I, I noted how hedgehogs were one of the, the prime targets for extermination and people would pay to have them removed. Um, and also these records of polecat, um, which is now a rare mammal in Britain. And you only, I, know, I think it is actually increasing again, but um, it's only really one that you find having been hit by a car. I, I found one, when I was walking in Horton and Ribblesdale in the Yorkshire Dales, mm. it was just dead on, um, not, not near a road, it was near a river, it was just lying there. But that's the only one I've ever seen. Mm. But it just goes to show you how, the kind of level of extermination and things that are actually now really rare. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, you know, that people were paid for hedgehogs. This, this came about as a result of the so-called Tudor Vermin Acts, which were passed by Henry VIII and then a um, much broader one by Elizabeth, which basically gave the parishes money, which they would distribute to people who brought in uh, dead, quote-unquote, vermin, which could be hedgehogs, polecats, as you mentioned, badgers, uh, a whole range of birds, uh, crows, rooks, uh, even bullfinches, because they supposedly stripped the buds from fruit trees. Basically, anything that was thought to compete with human beings for resources was classified as vermin, and people were people were paid to kill them. Uh, and I think it was sort of probably a you know handy source of inf income for the poorer parishioners, uh, you know, to make a few pence killing a few hedgehogs. Hedgehogs, they used to believe. Um, sucked the milk from sleeping cattle <laughs> that's the same with um night jars isn't it because yeah, the well, they, 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 they were called goat suckers yeah the latter name is caprimulgus yeah um that's that means goat sucker doesn't don't they don't they call um in america is it in america they call them goat suckers as well i know they call them whippoorwills i think that's probably yeah i don't know might, might be the native american name but um 
Goat Sucker is definitely, I mean, yeah, well, so what was that all about then? Because Nightjars were in the Great North Wood, weren't they? They certainly were, yes. Um, well, it was the same thing, you know, people had these mistaken beliefs that don't know how they came about. But, uh, you know, and that merited their inclusion on the list of animals to be persecuted. So having said that, going through the records, particularly with Camberwell, I don't think it was done that efficiently or systematically. Um, I think the species loss we've experienced is probably more to do with uh, industrial agriculture in the 20th century. Just going through those Campbell records, you know, they, they weren't really killing enough to keep pace with their rate of reproduction. No, I, no I noted that you said that in the book, um, and I do agree with you. I mean, the evidence does show that the species declines because of habitat loss um, mm. and a lack of biomass within insect populations so there's not enough food for other animals yeah so i've got um i've got a couple more questions for you before we finish and mm -hmm. um, while we're talking about the great north woods i just wondered what you th how you think people look back at the great north wood in a hundred years as it is today goodness um well i've no idea where we'll be in a hundred years from now apart from anything else, you know, given the climate emergency. But uh, presuming that everything doesn't, you know, go horribly awry, uh, I think people will probably look back, they will look back on the campaigners who saved it and, uh, you know, the trust that's uh, cared for it in much the way we look back on sort of, you know, the kind of Victorian reformers, people like Octavia Hill and so on, who fought to save Hampstead Heath and so forth. And, uh, you know, it will be a, oh, well, it may all be, always be something that is taken for granted the way um, Hampstead Heath is taken for granted now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully they will continue to exist and thrive. And hopefully, you know, we may have been able by then to create more sort of kind of wildlife corridors connecting them you know which can be done via hedges and so on you can put hedgehogs tunnels under roads uh, so that the habitats are less fragmented uh, which of course is uh, in itself a problem for uh, non-flying mammals uh, because their genetic diversity declines and leaves them more susceptible to disease and other problems yeah, you've mentioned London Wildlife just there, and and I'm we we've talked a lot more about the detail of of your research and stuff. That's what I wanted to focus on today because um, I am hopeful of London Wildlife Trust coming coming for an episode um, just to talk about their work. But yeah, you know the Great North Woods, a place like Sydenham Hillwood, was saved by the campaigning of London Wildlife Trust in the 1980s and you know, Sydenham Society, Dulwich Society, the local Absolutely. people. Um, so that's really important to remember that and also that the woods are protected by all the volunteers uh, Chris including yourself who um, who uh, donate their time to uh, to look after the place um, so it's important to remember that um, in terms of launching your book um, what are your hopes for the launch well who knows where we will be it's the book's due to be published on the 7th of October uh, who knows whether we will be able to have live in-person gatherings by then but if that were the case I would certainly you know 
like to launch it. Well, I mean, may well do a central London launch, but I would certainly like to do a launch within the area of the Great North Wood and possibly a number of events such as talks uh, to uh, all the various local friends groups, you know, the friends of Big Inwood and so on, uh, so that, you know, everyone gets to oh, see themselves, their own efforts reflected in it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things that's refreshing about this book. And I mean, it, it's, it's special interest, isn't it? Because it's, it's a local interest, but London is such a melting pot of people that um, it will be interesting to a, a great number of different people. Absolutely. Um, but one of the things that refreshes, is refreshing about reading this book, you know, a lot, a lot of writing about nature is from a certain perspective, isn't it? It's um, from, you didn't talk about what you had for breakfast um, the day that you went to research, <laughs> you know, you, you didn't talk about your, um, you didn't necessarily have exactly from your first, first person perspective. It's there's just so much detail in there. I think there will be so much use to people for, you know, decades to come, people trying to understand the woodland as it changes, which I think is what is so important is something that's really been needed. So yeah, that, that, that was very refreshing. Well, that was in a way what I set out to achieve in that I, I, I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, gather all the information that's available in between, you know, one set of covers uh, so that it was there as a future reference work. I mean, it's why the book has got uh, endnotes so that, uh, you know, people in future, you know, can verify my sources and follow them up if they need to. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's a certain, obviously, there's a personal perspective on there and uh you know i've been very involved in the woods for a long time so you know there is there is there is a bit of personal writing particularly towards the end but you didn't call it my search for the hedgehog hunters or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> which is what a lot a lot of books nowadays on nature seem to have that sort of title don't they but anyway i'm, I'm just i'm just messing around um the, i've got one closing question for you and it's one that yep. i want to i want want to ask this question to everyone who comes onto the onto the podcast um and i'm not i'm not some um sort of venture capitalist or anything like that but um <laughs> the question i've got to ask is if you had vast sums of money to invest in en environmental or community projects what would you donate to and why oh my goodness um i think well, just because of my own involvement, I think I would donate to uh, an urban environmental project because most of our people do live in cities, uh, more than 80 percent, because if we are going to uh, fight the climate crisis and still have a habitable planet in a few decades time, we've got to have everybody on board. Uh, and, you know, basically we need to involve diverse urban communities who too long have felt uh, excluded by the sector. Yeah, I fully agree with you, Chris. Um, I'd, I'd love to see, see that kind of investment in urban um, community projects and environmental projects. And definitely the conservation sector has a lot to do. It's the second least diverse um, in Britain next to farming. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, it's the one that's, that has some of the most kind of emotional capital because it's about conserving nature and, and 
the thing that you know the very thing that we depend on to survive so well that takes us to the the end of our conversation today um is there anything else you'd like to add before we go no, thanks thanks daniel it's been great talking to you thanks chris wishing you all the best and hopefully well in time for your book launch might be able to have a um, something in, in person and we can get through this these difficult times but <laughs> the pub yeah sorry um, look, looking i'm looking forward to reading the rest of your book and i'm sure there's loads of people out there who are, are going to be really keen to read it and really enjoy it so thank you so much for writing it and uh really wish much. you all the best with that yeah thanks daniel okay cheers chris bye yes